before we begin, would you join me in prayer as we go to this great God? Father, we are so grateful that the words that we just sung are not just words on a page, but they're a reality for so many of us. That you have provided everything that we need in order for us to know you intimately. God, you've paid the ultimate price so that we can be accepted in love by the Father. Not on the basis of anything that we could do to earn it, but on the basis of the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. And so my prayer for us today as we look into your word, as we hear from you, God, would you right now prepare our hearts? Would you remove the dullness and the coldness and the the callousness that sin can often place on our hearts that keeps us from truly worshiping you and experiencing you for who you are. Father, we didn't spend time today confessing our sins, but we know that we sin enough to spend the entire service confessing sin, and so we ask for your grace. We ask that you will remind us of the hope that we have in Christ, that it's nothing that we have done to earn your love, but your righteousness and your love was freely given to us. Would you be with us right now? Would your word declare of how good and great Jesus is? And would we respond with greater worship and trust in you? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Excited to be here today with you all. Um, it's been a while, and so... I'm excited to unpack God's word, but before we begin, I just want to update uh, the church on the team that we sent over to India last week. Um, I got an email from Pastor John this morning, and it was a long email, so for brevity's sake, I'm just going to give you a few of the highlights, but our entire team was able to enter into the country. Um, they got there, and everyone passed through clearly except for Pastor John um, for several reasons, but one, the Initial giveaway is the length of his name. There's not too many Anwichekwas in the world. And so um, when he passed through security, um, he spent some time um, answering a lot of questions. And those questions were, well, the first question was, what do you do for a living? John being put in that incident, he um, didn't really know how to respond, but he knew there's really no way to hide what I do. There's a website with my face on it. And so he told him I'm a pastor of a church to which they proceeded to prod a little bit deeper and end the discussion um, by God's grace. Another answer to our prayers, um, they led him into the country freely. Over the last week, um, they've had so many opportunities to share the gospel with so many people. He says it's been extremely challenging, but God has been faithful in that every day they start with prayer. They start with asking God to give opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know them, primarily Hindus and, 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 and um, those who are Muslims. And to God's glory, the gospel is going forth. People are already being saved, and those who never heard of Jesus are hearing about Jesus for the first time. And so that's something that we should celebrate. One of his prayer requests was just for, um, and for those that are members of Cornerstone, you know we've been praying for Chad and Tina, uh, some of the missionaries that we support over there. Um, 
Tina's mom has had cancer. Um, she's, she has stage four terminal cancer, and so they don't really know how much longer she has. They'll be returning back to the country in a few weeks. And so, one, we're praying that God would heal her completely. Um, but we're also rejoicing in the fact that she knows Jesus, and if God were to use this as a means to bring her into glory, to reunite her with her maker, then we celebrate that as well, that she will be with God forever. And so we just ask and invite all of you guys here today, if that comes to mind over the next few weeks, would you just continue to not only lift up our team, pray that the gospel continues to bear fruit, but also pray for Chad and Tina that, um, yeah, God would bring healing to her. Um, I'm going to ask real quick that everyone stand with me as we read God's word. Um, Today we're going to begin a two-part series in the book of Luke. Pastor John went through for about six weeks through various stories through the book of Luke, and today we're going to find ourselves back in that gospel, um, beginning with chapter 4. And so if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we'll be diving in or um, we'll be going over the next 13 or these 13 verses over the next couple weeks. And this is what God's word says. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. And was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son, excuse me, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written that man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority um, and give, I'm sorry, give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. You guys may take your seats. I want to begin our time with a question to you all in this room today, and the question is, have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever questioned his love on the basis of what he's allowed to happen in your life? Have you ever found it difficult connecting the things you know in God's word with the actual everyday realities of your life? You may be able to recite God's word. You know the familiar passages of Romans 8.28. For all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, 
and who have been called according to his purposes. You can requite and uh, recite and quote Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 that tells you that we should trust in the Lord with all our heart, leaning not on our own understandings, but acknowledging him in all of our ways, and he will make our path straight. We know God's word, but my question or my pushback to all of us is, what do you do when you find yourself in the place or the in-between of knowing what God says and the reality of life? What do you do when you find yourself stuck in between a place of knowing things that God has said and being able to trust those things in your heart? Now, we've been in church, probably most of us have been in church for some time, and so we can come here and put our mask on and act as though that's not my struggle. That no, I don't wrestle with trusting God for, at what he says. Well, uh, let's be honest for a moment. If you're a follower of Christ, all of you, all of us have been brought to a point where trusting God gets hard. All of us have been brought to a point where there's a disconnect between what we know and what we actually believe. If we're honest, we all struggle at times with trusting God. I find that this is especially true in times of tragedy. In times where that job that you thought was secure and in the bank is here today and gone in an instant. I find that when tragedy hits, it could be the loss of a loved one for one, and it could be the breaking or the crumbling of a marriage for another. For one, it could be the loss of a dear friend, and for the other, it could be the diagnosis of a health issue that you didn't know existed. Tragedy has a way of bringing us to our knees, but tragedy isn't the only thing that causes us to waver in our trust of God. Suffering can also come in the form of temptation. We can find ourselves trying to do our best to live for God, and then in the times where we think we're strongest, we come face to face with the reality of our weakness, of how susceptible we are to the same old temptations. Sin has a way of convincing us even that we've overcome it, and then out of nowhere it pokes its head back up like it's Groundhog's Day. God, I thought I was done with that. God, I thought I had moved past that. Why is this not changing? Why am I going back to the same old thing? Temptation. We can, it can feel like this gravitational pull back into a life that God had set us free from But yet in this moment, going way back there looks better than following Christ over there. That is what temptation does. And the reality is all of us face it. You don't have to be a Christian to know about temptation. 
for the last few months, all that's been plastered over the news in this Me Too movement or uh, the Time is Up movement are men and women who in one moment or several moments of weakness, the effects of them giving in to their temptation has shattered not only their lives but the lives of others. You don't have to be a Christian to know about temptation. I think the question for us is, that when we are faced with those moments, with those seasons, with those times in which we're struggling to trust in God, I think we need to be honest with the reality of what we're really saying is, God, I don't know if I can trust you with my life. God, can you really take care of me or am I better off taking care of myself? We may not say that. Those words may not come from our lips. We're far too smart for that. We're smart too clever than to recite with such vulnerability. But God knows our hearts and he sees our weakness. And we all have been brought to those moments where, God, I don't know if I can trust you. Is there anyone in here today that has been in that place where, God, I don't know if I can trust you? Now, I don't plan on being up here long. And so for those that like taking notes, I really only have one point for you today. That point is simple, and that is a charge and, an, uh, and, and, and a challenge to us that we can trust in God. That may be too simple for some of y'all, but, but, but for those that really understand it, that alone can carry us into the next few years. That alone, the understanding that we can trust in God is enough to carry us into eternity. We have a God that is trustworthy, and in this instance, we can trust God to provide what we need. Today, we're only going to spend time in the first three verses, and so... Um, in an effort not to be up here too long, let's go ahead and dive into the text. To give a little backstory, we find ourselves in the chapter, Luke chapter 4, and the previous three chapters, Luke has, um, they're really filled with announcements and declarations about the coming of a son. Chapter 3, we find ourselves in a climax where Jesus is baptized in the river, but the first one and two chapters are filled with angels speaking, testifying about the coming of a son. Men and women speaking and testifying of the salvation that has now come in Jesus. Uh, uh, righteous men and prophets all declaring that salvation is here. But now in chapter 3, all those voices start to cease. Now in chapter 3, after angels have spoken and men and women have spoken, God quiets their voices and says, it's time for me to speak. Here we see Jesus coming to the point to where he enters the Jordan River and in him entering the river, he encounters his father. It says in the text that the skies open up. And out of the heavens, a dove descends on Jesus, the Holy Spirit. But not only a dove, but a voice appears. And that voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God, when he communicates, he does not want any confusion. 
And so for those who are audible learners, he speaks and he reveals, this is my son. And for those that are visual learners, he says, look at the Holy Spirit of God descending upon him in the form of a dove. Let there be no confusion that I declare to the world that this, thy son, Jesus Christ, is the son of God. And in him I am well pleased. Jesus goes from a place where he's given absolute, unquestionable affirmation from God the Father. You have my presence. I affirm you as my son. But now he transitions into a new season of life. The text picks up in verse 1 and it says, Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by The devil. In the river, God's presence was apparent. God's voice was clear. It was obvious. It was visible. Jesus could have no doubt that God was with him. I think we need to understand the significance of what the river means. The river is a place where things thrive, where life exists. If a river was near you, you knew that you had a continuing flowing access to springs of life. In the river, God, Jesus gets affirmation from the Father. But yet the text says he leaves that place. He leaves the Jordan and is now led into the wilderness. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and so anyone who knows anything about the Middle East is it's filled with deserts. Some of us may have a hard time envisioning that because we've only seen deserts on TV. But I can assure you of one thing, that if the river is a place of life, the wilderness is a place of death. The wilderness is not where things go to survive. No, it's a place where people, things go to die. Jesus goes from the river to the wilderness, and God leads him there. I intentionally skipped out on one incredibly important detail in the story so far. Jesus goes from the river to the wilderness, but look at who is with him. It says that he is, he leaves the river, the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit and is led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Common thought would think that if my circumstances change, then that must be a sign that God has changed as well. God has not changed here. God's presence and affirmation that he gave to Jesus in the river, he gives his spirit now. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and it is the spirit that leads him into the wilderness. That's a good place to circle in your Bible. The Holy Spirit is with Jesus. I think many of us need that reminder because when we talk about the Holy Spirit, depending on what circle you come from, you're going to have a few different responses. Some people fear the Holy Spirit because their entire experience has, they've only seen people claiming to have them act in incredibly weird ways. The Holy Spirit is somebody who makes you act like a buffoon who makes you act in ways that no one can understand, and so therefore you fear him. It's okay to teach about him. It's okay to talk about him. It's okay to reference him in Scripture, but we're not going to let him out of time out. He's going to misbehave. Or you could be on the other side. 
where the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is somebody who we acknowledge, but we don't necessarily believe he's needed in our everyday lives. Pastor Mo is about to unpack the, uh, and preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit in a couple weeks, and so I'm not going to steal his thunder. But what I do want to do is give us a crash course in who the Holy Spirit is. I think we have to understand why it's significant that the Holy Spirit is with Jesus here as he goes from the Jordan into the, uh, the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is someone that God, if you, let me backtrack, if you are a person who has placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then God's pro, uh, pro, uh, providence for you or God's provision for you is that he gives you his spirit. The Holy Spirit now lives amongst or lives within us, and its purpose is to teach us about God. Its purpose is to guide us. Its purpose is to uh, produce the transforming work to make us look more like the Son of God. And its purpose is to protect us. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal from God. He's not something or someone we can lose. He's not something that we have to snatch out of thin air in order to get. God has given all of his people his spirit, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. You don't have to question if God is ever with you if he has given you his spirit. He's done much more for us than to simply give us the ability to sense his spirit out there. No, he's given us the ability and the assurance that God himself is living inside of you and I. This is the goodness of God's grace in our life is that he gives us his spirit. The Holy Spirit is with Jesus in the river. And the Holy Spirit is with Jesus as he enters into the wilderness. And it says that he is being led there to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. The second thing that I want to bring our attention to is that we need to be careful not to think that as the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, that the Holy Spirit is the one doing the tempting. God does not tempt men. James tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil and therefore he himself tempts no man with evil. And so for those who would want to complain, God, why am I being tempted? Why are you allowing me to go through these things? He merely says, don't point the finger at me. I'm not tempting you. I'm not a dad who would put you in a situation only to see you destroyed. No, I'm a God. I'm your father. And so, therefore, I'm allowing temptation to happen, but I'm not the one doing the tempting. Here, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by the devil. I think on a first glance, we can kind of look at this account and say, man, why is God leading Jesus into the wilderness only to be tempted by the devil? And I think we need to be, um, we need to kind of break down what that word actually means. Most of us understand temptation um, in the sense of being tempted or lured into do something evil. 
if we just read the word here at face value, we're going to misunderstand what actually is taking place. That word tempted in this particular instance, in the Greek word of that, it simply means to prove oneself or to be tested. God is not simply putting Jesus in a position so that he can be destroyed by the enemy. No, God is providing us the opportunity to look at the son that he just declared and to peer into his heart to see the essence of who he really is. God is putting Jesus to test. He's putting Jesus through the test to see the authenticity of his worship, to see the authenticity of his trust in God, his father, to expose him for who he really is. If God would put his only begotten son to test, who are we to think that God would not do the same for us? Do you mistake the temptations and the things that are happening in your life for the hand of God as if he sought to destroy you? Or do you think about it from the lens of a loving father disciplining his son or his daughter? I'm going to see, I'm going to put you into the fire only to see what's in you. And not only for me to see, because God already knows what's in you, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be gracious enough to you to let you see yourself. This is what God's testing is like. I, I love to bake, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I love to bake. And one of the things about baking is that when you bake, you know, uh, any baker, the ultimate goal is to produce this decadent and delectable dessert, right? And in baking, one of the things you do is you say, hey, I got a taste for pound cake today. Let me go ahead and get all the ingredients. Let me put this all together. And so you find all of the ingredients and you measure it out in the exact portions that are needed to produce an end result. So you put in a little bit of butter. You cream the butter and sugar. You add the flour, you vanilla, all that good stuff, right? And there comes a point where everything that's needed in order to get you to that ultimate place of satisfaction is in the pot, but what's needed to take place is that, that those ingredients have to now go into the pan. Those ingredients have to now go into the oven. And so as a baker, you put this beautiful dessert that's right now it's just cake batter. It has everything it needs, but it's just cake batter. And I'm not one of those guys that like to eat cake better, batter. That's nasty. <laughs> so you put it in the oven, right? And you turn the temperature up a little bit. And on and on for a few minutes, you're like, man, is it done yet? And you go back and you check. And you're like, no, nah, it's still batter. And so you're like, okay, it needs a little bit more time. And you check again and again. And you're like, man, it's not done yet. And when it gets a little bit closer, you start to see those edges start to crisp up. And you're like, okay, I'm starting to smell the aroma. Oh, this is getting good. It's almost time. And there comes a point where you can't really tell by sight if it's done. You've got to pull it out a little bit and get a toothpick and put the toothpick in the middle of it to make sure it's cooked all the way through. So you inspect it and you're like, man, it's, ah, the cake batter came off. It's not ready yet. So you put it back in the oven, let it cook a little bit longer, and then you pull it out again and you take that same toothpick, not to destroy the cake, but just to test it to make sure, mm, is it ready yet? And then you pull it off and it's clean and you take out this good, buttery, delicious, delectable, enticing, fulfilling thing. 
and you cut a slice and you probably add a, a, a scoop of uba ice cream and, 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 and so you're good, right? It's good, it's ready. God is a master baker. Think of God's testing in our lives as him putting us in the oven and saying, I'm, I'm waiting to produce that, that, that amazing picture of myself. But in order to get there, I need to put you in the oven a little bit more. And I'm not going to put you in the oven long enough to burn you. No, I'm just going to put you in the oven long enough to produce exactly what I intend on producing in you. And ever so often when it gets too overwhelming and too intense, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to check you. I'm going to make sure you're all right. And if you're not done, I'm going to put you back in. Because he cares about seeing his son. He cares about the end product. He who began a good work in you and I is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And he will stop at nothing to get and to fulfill that promise. God is a master baker. But the other thing that this highlights is the sovereignty of God. We have three individuals in this narrative. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the devil. Not three, but four. God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the devil. And if we mistake Understanding how sovereign God is over this temptation will believe that Satan is a co-star in the story. We'll mistakenly believe that Satan has uh, that Satan in this particular situation brings equal contributions to the script. But he doesn't. Yes, he's the one doing the tempting, but he's simply a pawn of God. He's a servant of God, which reminds us, which reminds you and I that though Satan is allowed to do certain things, that though Satan is allowed to do tempting in our life, every one of his plans have to be sifted through the fingertips of almighty God. God will not allow Satan, Satan to tempt us beyond the place in which we will be consumed and destroyed. No, God has his finger on the thermostat and he says you can only go but so far. God is sovereign. Let's look at a verse just to anchor this truth down to us because many of us may not be familiar with it. Um, you don't have to turn there. It should be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says this in his letter. He says that No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. An old pastor quotes this, Charles Spurgeon. He says, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. When you cannot trace the hand of God in your life, you must, we must trust his heart. There'll be times where you can't understand what God is doing. But if you know God, you know his heart. 
And his heart is not for our destruction. His heart is for our preservation. God loves us. There's purpose in everything we go through. He is working behind the scenes. And we're going to come back a little bit more to help illuminate a little bit more what his purpose is behind all this. But for the sake of time, let's keep moving. The text says, and he ate nothing during these days. And when they were over, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. I've been hungry before, right? You've been hungry before. I may have missed a couple meals here and there. But I ain't missed 40 days worth of meals. I haven't, if, if three square meals is kind of the standard, I haven't missed 120 square home-cooked meals. But Jesus here has. Jesus, in this text, they say is, he's hungry. I, I, I like to believe that, no, he's not just hungry. That brother is moving into hangry. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a time where you say, man, I'm hungry because I, I didn't have a snack a couple hours ago. But no, this is, this is hungry to the brink of, of, of questioning whether or not he's going to live anymore. Jesus is hungry. You can imagine the deliriousness that would have taken place if you missed 40 meals. There was a time where we as a church, we fasted on the first Wednesday of the month. And some of y'all looked a little delirious when we came into the sanctuary. And that was just a couple meals. You can imagine being starved for 40 days, how that shrub that you saw in the desert started looking more like collard greens to you. You could imagine the aroma of dew in the morning time smelling a little bit more like mama's home cooking. Everything starts tasting good to you or sounding good to you when you're hungry. Jesus was hungry. Have you ever been so hungry that, you know, you're at a friend's house and, you know, they're, they're, they got to be black friends because not everybody eats this. But you're at a friend's house and they say, hey, I don't really have anything, but... Um, uh, how about these Vienna sausages, right? And now, you know, we don't normally eat that. That's, that's, come on, man, that's a step up above dog food. But when you're hungry, when you're hungry, when you're desperate, Vienna sausages start sounding more like filet mignon, right? And so you said, nah, man, I'll take those Vienna sausages. And you said, hey, do you have any saltine crackers with that? Do you have any red hot sauce with that? And you make yourself a meal and you do what you need to satisfy your hunger. Jesus is hungry. And so the Satan sees that Jesus is hungry and he asks a simple, he makes a simple statement. He says, hey, uh, you're the son of God. Why don't you tell this stone to become a Popeye's biscuit, right? Why don't you turn that stone into something that would satisfy your need right now? There would be nothing wrong for Jesus to feed himself because he's hungry. There's no sin in that. But this can't possibly just be about Jesus being tempted to eat something just because he's hungry. No, that's not at all what it's about. This is an indictment against God himself as a father. 
This is an attack against God to say, hey, you are the son of God. There's no question mark behind his statement. He's making a statement. Hey, you're the son of God, right? Turn this stone into bread. You're the son, right? Where's your daddy? Oh, you're at a place of need and want. Where's your father? I thought he was so good. I know I'm not the only one that's been in that place when I look at lack or loss in my life and I question, Daddy, where you at? Where those friends around you or those neighbors around you who know you're following Jesus and they see trouble in your life and they say, aren't you a Christian? Where's your daddy at? Where's your trust at? Who's responsible for your care? And the temptation here isn't eat this or turn this. The temptation here is trust in yourself because you can't trust in God. My favorite basketball player is LeBron James. And so um, we're going through a little transition period right now. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're doing all right. We'll, we'll get through it. But back in the day, LeBron had these Sprite commercials, right? And in these Sprite commercials, I don't know if y'all, you know, we're a young church, so I don't know if y'all remember these, but there was this character called Thirst, right? And so in this one commercial, LeBron's in his condo, and he comes to, you know, he has a knock on the door, and he opens the door, and there's Thirst, and so he reaches down, daps, what's up, Thirst, man, what's going on? So he starts telling him, he takes him a tour around his new crib, he's like, hey, Thirst, come into here, come into there. Finally, they make their way into the kitchen, right? So Thirst comes in, and he sees, and LeBron's like, hey, look at my Sprite machine, right? Like, who has a Sprite machine in the kitchen, right? Come look at, you see the Sprite machine? And so Thirst is like, what? And he goes on, he says, crisp, clean, you know, Sprite at your fingertips. And he goes on this whole rendition into where LeBron drinks the Sprite and he starts to cry. And he's just like, man, it's just so beautiful, right? And so as he's, relishing the reality that Sprite had, uh, LeBron had everything he needed, he tells them, he tells us, show them my motto, right? <laughs> and of course, a, a picture comes on the screen, obey your thirst. Obey your thirst. This is an uh, obey your thirst type of moment. This is a moment where Jesus has to decide between, man, do I do I trust God with my life enough not to obey the cravings that are within me? This is the moment when the thirst is so real that, that the convictions you had that were rooted in Scripture start to look a little unattractive. You start thinking about all the ways in which you can start to, man, did God really say that I should be pure? Did God really say that as a Christian woman that, God, I've been single for 27 years and you ain't giving, giving me my husband? Maybe he doesn't really need to be a Christian. Maybe uh, it's okay if he's just fine with going to church on Sunday. We can bring our kids to church and they'll hear the God. Nah, he doesn't really have to be a real Christian. Just is he okay with going to church? God, I don't have that man yet, but did you really say I need to be modest? Nah, modesty don't catch, catch men. Maybe I should dress a little bit more revealing. 
maybe I should show a little bit more, and maybe that, that guy, I'll be able to get what I want and get that husband right. Oh, it got real quiet up in here. <laughs> but ladies, I'm not going to just pick on you, men. Maybe she really doesn't have to be a part of the church. Maybe she doesn't have to have friends or other Christian sisters to be accountability partners for her. Maybe as long as she's okay with coming around when I need her to, ah, she's all right. I'll let her slide. I could go on and on with scenarios. The thirst can get real, real quick. Will you obey your thirst or will you obey God? Will you trust in yourself or will you trust in what God has said is best for you? The seduction of temptation that we see here is to convince us of really two things. It attempts to convince you that you don't have all that you need right now. Look at this. Look at that. You need that. Or it attempts to convince us that, man, what you really lack, you don't need to wait on God. You can actually provide that for yourself. Go ahead and go ahead and get that. That's the two seductions of temptation. problem for many of us is that we forgot where we came from. As Christians, you can be walking with the Lord for so long that that, that self-righteousness creeps up that you forget what God saved you from. And you begin to overestimate your ability to live this life so much so that you stop relying on God, you start depending on yourself. But what can truly satisfy you outside of God? Show me a person who has smoked enough weed and thinks that they've had enough for the rest of their lives. Show me a person who has drunk enough alcohol that can say and testify, oh, that's filled me up. I've had enough. Show me a person who has had enough partners, had a sex with enough people that can say, hey, I've had enough. That satisfies me. Show me a person who has bought enough things and has provided for themselves in such a way that they can say, I've got enough now. There is nothing out there. There is nothing out there that can truly satisfy you but God. God says trust me because he knows what he can provide you. God says trust me because he knows what he has to offer you. God says trust me because it's only in him that you will hunger and thirst no longer. How many of you actually believe that though? We are foolish people. We can believe that on Sunday and then by Monday morning it's as if it never crossed our desk. We're forgetful. And when God puts us into the oven to see, hey, do you really believe that? We often fail miserably. That girl, that guy, that job, that consistent paycheck, that you name it, looks so much better to us than God does. The problem is they don't have the same track record as God. 
you were created by God and for God. If you believe that, then that means that God has he has specifically created you that you cannot be satisfied but anything by anything but him. The devil tempts him. Jesus is hungry. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And finally, Jesus answered him. It is written that man must not live on bread alone. I love how Jesus doesn't get into some theological debate with Satan. I love how Jesus doesn't go back and forth with Satan as if he has anything more to offer him than God's word alone. I also love how Jesus didn't say when temptation came, he didn't say, hold up, hold on, Satan, say, let me go get my Bible real quick. Hold on, hold on, lust, hold, hold on real quick. Let me, what did the, what did it say? Thou shalt, no, he didn't do all that. Jesus had prepared for his encounter with temptation prior to. Early on, we see Jesus as a young boy in the temple, learning God's word, knowing God's word, girding himself up with God's word, so that now that he's in the wilderness, when temptation comes his way, he's given the Holy Spirit enough ammunition to say, let me fight that lie with God's truth. Jesus doesn't mince words, he just responds with God's word. Man must not live on bread alone. You're not strong enough. Let me say this, church. Your willpower is not enough to resist the temptation of the devil. Your accountability group is not enough to resist the temptations of the devil. Your mama, your daddy, your auntie, none of them is enough to resist the temptations of the enemy. God's word alone is enough. The takeaway for all of us needs to be, how well do we know God's word and do we actually believe we need it? Do we actually believe we need to know God's word so well that when the enemy twists it and manipulates it, does all kinds of funky stuff with it, and we can recognize, no, that's a lie. Here, Jesus is tempted to distrust his father. God, you can't care for me. God, you can't provide for me. He could even say, God, what have you done for me lately? My sisters back in the day, I don't know if y'all remember them, they had uh, these things called memory books. And the memory books serve the purpose of, like, as life's events happen in your life, you can go cut a picture, take a picture, put it in the book, write a little note so that as you get older, you can go back to that. And when your memory fails you, you have something that helps you remember what life is like. Well, God's word is, functions sort of like that for us. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament quotes Deuteronomy 8 and he recalls ah, in this moment I need to remember something about God to keep me from disobeying God. And so he goes back. If you would turn with me, let's look at 
what Jesus quotes. But we're going to read the entire context of those verses. So we're not going to just be at three. We're going to go from two to five. And the text says in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 5. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you may learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his child. We, we talked a little earlier about the purpose of God's testing in our lives and I said I would come back to it and so I just really briefly want to give a few helpful just just truths that will help keep us um, just as we go through these wilderness kind of seasons and um, that will help keep us anchored during those times. That there's purpose behind what God is doing through our tests. In the text, um, we see that God's testing is meant to produce humility in us. All of us can get to a place where we are more self-deficient than God-dependent. Where we rely on what we can provide for ourselves rather than trusting God for everything that we need. And so God says, I withheld bread from you to humble you. But not only that, he says that his testing exposes our hearts. And I talked about this earlier. God is completely aware of where you are. He knows everything that circles and bounces around our hearts, whether they come off of our lips or not. God's grace and mercy in the life of his children is that he's not going to let you stay deceived. God is going to expose us for who we really are. He's going to reveal our hearts to ourselves. The third thing is that God's testing provides us with an opportunity to obey him or not. The test is simply to allow us to see how much do we really believe God is who he says he is? Will we obey God when nobody else is looking and it's just you, the temptation, and him? His t testing provides us with an opportunity to obey him or not. And lastly, God's testing is meant to produce greater dependency on God. He wants all of us. He wants all of us, and he will not settle until he gets that, all of us. In close, there was nothing attractive to Jesus about the enticements that Satan put before him. There was nothing in Jesus. If temptation or testing exposes what's in our hearts, then we can look at the heart of the Son of God and see that because he was able to resist, that there was nothing in him impure. There was nothing in him that was unrighteous that would be drawn or lured away to chase that thing rather than to chase God. Luke, in chapter 1, he makes mention and he says, I'm writing this to my dear friend Theophilus so that what you have been instructed in, you would, would be a firm conviction of 
yours. We've heard a lot of things about Jesus, but Luke is like, I want to make it crystal clear to everyone who reads this account that Jesus is the son of God. There may be those in this room today who you're, you're hearing this and you are unmoved. Giving your life to Jesus and trusting him seems more frightful than it does comforting. You know, you, you, you've heard these things before, but nothing is gripping you to say, today I want to trust in Jesus. But then there may be others of you who are tired of running after dot, 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 because you finally come to the end of yourself. You finally come to the bottom and you know that all of that stuff, the women, the men, the drugs, the alcohol, the fame, the power, the whatever it is, all of it leaves you empty. That's God's grace in your life right now. That you're finally able to recognize it. That you're finally able to see that, man, there has to be more to life than all of this. And that's the marker of any Christian. That we finally recognize that I could never attain or achieve perfection on my own, that I need to look to somebody else. And that someone else is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus comes to earth for us. God himself wraps himself in human flesh. He subjects himself to all, every temptation known to man, but the text, the Bible says that he did not sin, not even once. He lives a perfect and holy life, and now, and what that life cost him was the cross. There on the cross, Jesus is murdered, he is crucified, but the story doesn't end there. We know that God did all of that so that he can bore within his own body our sins. Everything we deserve because of our sin and because of our disobedience, Jesus takes it on himself and he says, I'm going to die for you. And in him dying on that cross, his blood spilled that day purchased for us an opportunity, an opportunity to trust him as Lord and Savior. Don't believe the lie that you can respond to God some other time. Tomorrow's not promised. You have an opportunity, an invitation held out before you that God says, look, my son, behold him. This is who I'm well pleased with. Trust in him. As we move on, um, yeah, we just want to open it up. Mo, uh, Wes, any of our deacons. Um, I don't want to leave this time and to not give opportunity for people to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. The time is now. So as they would come up, um, we're going to spend just a few time praying. If you're, if you're already a member of this church, um, and you already know that you have placed your faith in Jesus, we would ask that you would spend a few minutes and just pray. Pray for your neighbor, pray for somebody in this room. Pray that God would move in their hearts and that they would be brought to repentance and that they would recognize their need for Jesus.
and then after that, we'll come back up, and we're going to celebrate as a family and do communion together. So uh, we ain't got no musicians, so um, Reggie, put on the track for us. Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that we don't have to depend or run to things that leave us empty and broken and unsatisfied, but that you have provided everything that we needed in order to experience true satisfaction. Father, we ask that for those who were here today and they feel the tug on their heart, but they didn't feel comfortable enough to come and prayed for. Father, would you not allow them to leave this space without placing someone in their path who can tell them about Jesus, who can pray for them and share with them more about the goodness of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we all will be encouraged to not only be able to resist temptation when it comes our way, but to choose you over it, God. We not rely upon our own strength or our own ingenuity, but would we allow your word to take root in our lives so that when faced with whether or not we will trust in something other than you, we would choose you every time. God, we're grateful. We're grateful for you and we're grateful for the work that you're doing. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.